<laughs> Hi, everyone. Count Floyd here. Reminding you to watch this Saturday night at 11 o'clock for Monster Chiller Horror Theater. We got a scary one for you this week. It's that three-dimensional semi-classic Dr. Tongue's House of Cats. It's in 3D, so you'll have to send away for your special glasses. Now let's take a look at some chilling scenes from Dr. Tongue's House of Cats. And I'm Troy Harkin. And, and David, it's Halloween. We're actually at Halloween. I'm going to be carving a pumpkin pretty soon. I am so excited. It's It's been a good uh, October. Um, it's been great having uh, Bev Vincent do that uh, sort of triple header of, of shows with us. And here we are now, right before Halloween. And if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky and I live to tell the tale... Um, by the time this show drops, I will have gone to Stephen King's house in Bangor, Maine on the week of Halloween. So I'm pretty excited about that. And I don't think I've told you this. You know where else I might go on the way up to Bangor? Uh, where? The Exorcist Stairs in Georgetown. Christy's been once before, so she knows how to do it. But uh, for me, that's on my my horror bucket list. So visiting the stairs that uh, Reagan threw out Burke Dennings and uh, Father Karras threw himself out and down those stairs. That's the stairs. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that should be quite uh, something. It's almost like that would be on the horror, horror fans top 10 list of what you would it, want to uh, do. It could, it could, it could be. Yeah. And um yeah, I'm really looking forward to this show where we're actually covering um, what we have deemed to be the best horror films, basically, of all time. Um, yeah, this is our top 10 horror films episode. That's what it is. It and is. We, and maybe people will not be happy, but this is our list. and we On our show. We to. On our show. That's right. <laughs> And and what we've decided too is, you know, we've got the background. We're genre writers, and we think that, you know, we should basically be able to offer Troy and David's master class of horror. So so welcome to it, students. Have a seat, please. Just settle in. If you're just auditing, that's fine. Um, but uh, enjoy the knowledge that you pick up through your two instructors. Yep. So we're recording this on Wednesday, September 28th, 2022, and it is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, October 29th. Uh, we do not have a special guest for this episode. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Okay, here comes a spooky spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! <laughs> <laughs> it was not something.
That was great. Thanks, Troy. We're recording this session via Zoom. Now, Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with a speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. And this episode to be posted just a few days before Halloween celebrates the best horror movies. And horror isn't just slasher films, gore, and jump scares. There are some artistic moments, a lot of brilliant work, and we are here to celebrate the horror genre, which includes psychological horror. And in fact, I went online to a site for um, lafilm.edu, the um, uh, LA Film School, and they have horror split into 10 sub-genres. Now, these are the 10, um, Troy, and they might have left one or two out. I'm not sure, but this is a pretty good list. They have demonic, uh-huh. paranormal, monster, slasher, zombie, and then they've got gore. And that's not Al Gore, by the way. That's okay. uh, tipper. a different kind of gore. Yeah, tipper gore. Uh, witchcraft, vampire, psychological, as we mentioned earlier. And actually, a, a kind of a, a neat uh, one of their 10 is actually comedic. Ah. And you know, one that I think you could include that doesn't get done much anymore, but was big in the seventies would be erotic, erotic horror. So like I saw a film the other day, which would also be a vampire film, but it was called uh, the vampires. And it's about, (laughs) I have shutter. So I watch everything. It was about uh, two lesbian uh, vampires who seduce uh, their prey um, so there was a lot of nudity and whatnot from 1974, I believe. Um, so that could go either way. So, so let's see. So demonic, um, clearly that could be like any possession film, right? Generally, right? And Troy, now that you're mentioning the, the whole thing with the erotic is that horror covers and crosses so many paths, you know, when you have horror in, in outer space. Right. Um, there was even one of those black exploitation uh, films, Blackula. Right. About a, va- a black vampire. So, sure. you know, they're just horror like covers. Some genres. Yeah. And just you can set, set, you know, you can have a cornfield and that's horror. Yeah. You know what? I didn't realize that people find cornfields frightening. Like that's something I just uh, heard recently. And I guess, you know, I spent a few years um, growing up on a farm. So to me, it was just sort of background. But is that something that you had known, David, or something? Was it, did you ever find cornfields frightening? I was sort of more scared, scared of scarecrows than, and, and uh, some yeah. scarecrow, like, like your standard yeah. one isn't really that scary, but some people can be quite artistic in the design of them. One of the most beautiful things I saw was, a drone, one of these little flying drone things with right. these sheets on it, it almost looked like a floating ghost um, hovering along, you know, the, the, the oh, dark wow. avenue. And I was thinking that would oh, be my so God. cool. Oh, my God. So you mentioned crazy. demonic. There's a paranormal. And, and I have to admit, I haven't seen paranormal activity yet, but I've seen the, the couple of the scenes that are very iconic and famous from that yep. film. Sure. Um I guess monster would be like leprechaun or even the film troll or trolls Two, which is a hilariously bad film, but enjoyable as a result. 
Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Um, I guess slasher we don't even have to worry about because that's sort of self-evident as a zombie. Yeah. yeah. And gore, I guess, would be like body horror. Um, and I guess and early. Some push, yeah, Saw even. Um, right. Early Cronenberg had a lot hmm. of body horror, like Rabid. Uh, actually, Witchcraft, obviously, The Witch, which I love that film. I'll probably mention at some point later. Uh, psychological, yeah, those are good because not necessarily anything really needs to happen. Um, like actually, uh, Roman Polanski has a film called Repulsion, um, about a woman with a lot of psychological torment going on. He has another film called, uh, The Tenant, um, which would probably fall into that category. And, yeah, and was it was there a witch hunter or there was something was it Vin Diesel or am I getting him confused with someone else? Or was some something where he's uh captured a witch uh and it was actually very high cat like it's very well done film. Oh cool. I'll have to look for that. And comedic, I guess, and a lot of those like things like Shaun of the Dead and American. They even mentioned Evil Dead. Uh in yeah. that, like when I when I read the article on on the the LA film ed you about the subgenres of horror films because Evil Dead has a lot of funny. I mean, the the, the parts or even Evil Dead too. The part where he's trying to say "Klatu Barada Nikto," it's Nikto or Nikto, right? Yeah, and he's trying to say that he's covering his mouth and and blabbering it a bit. It's, it's oh, that's hilarious! And, and the cabinet uh, goes on forever, of course. Yeah. Oh, especially like I was a huge fan of the Evil Dead, and then when it went on to Evil Dead Two, it really amps up the the humor. And I suppose in the third film, too, Army of Darkness, but yeah, they really went for like all out kind of farce. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Now I always like to use a little quote and and talk about this the idea of psychological horror because I think a couple of our our top ten will have that sort of psychological sense to it. Uh, Kurt Russell's character. McCready from the movie The Thing from 1982 may have said it best when he said, nobody trusts anybody now, and we're all very tired. And it gives you that sense of even the invasion of the body snatch, the original and the remake with Donald Sutherland, where you're alone and you've got all these people that may not be human Mm -hmm. and just the whole effect on you, that isolation and and it's almost like a, a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things that um, that I thought we could do, David, considering, you know, we are now instructors of uh, this master class, um, I recognize that not only do we have fans of horror here, but we have folks who would would like to go on to be horror filmmakers, horror filmmakers to be. Um, and so I thought, you know, I would give them a few tips. I, I threw together a quick top 10. Uh, I don't know if you remember Father Guido Sarducci, who used to be on Saturday Night Live. He once Absolutely. had a, he once had a bit called five minute university. So this is our five minute, uh, filmmaking class here. Number one, be scary. Number two, I have care actors. Let me care about your care actors, your characters. Three, I'm just being a, a, a doofus here. Three, you can't build a horror film on jump scares alone. So get that out of your head. Number four, fuck with my mind. Keep me off balance. I want to know what's happening. Uh, number five, this is film. Use lighting and music and sound 
to create mood. Number six, I want to know, can you scare me without blood and gore? If so, you're my kind of filmmaker. Seven, take your time. Build suspense. A little foreplay, please. Give me a little tantric horror, if you will. Number eight, body count does not equal great horror. And we're going to see that with our lists, I think. Your deaths need to have meaning and impact. Number nine, avoid humor unless it serves your characters and or your story. Ten, be scarier. To paraphrase Bart Simpson in the Treehouse of Horror, you know what would be scarier than nothing? Anything. And that's my top ten for horror filmmakers to be, David. Thanks a lot, Troy. And as you were reading that list, I was thinking of the various films that we've already sort of covered or looked at, like our folk uh, horror episode with Midsummer, which has such a great, it's just such a powerful and such a good film, and Wicker Man. Um, and and this whole idea of, of that paranoia and, and, and what's going on reminds me of that old joke about someone who goes into a, a library and asks where the books on paranoia are and the librarian whispers, they're right behind, behind you. They're right behind you. On to our top 10 horror movies episode. <laughs> and unlike our sci-fi films list, which was from season two, episode 12, which was Troy and David's top 10 sci-fi films and our fantasy list, which we actually had as two episodes. It was season two, episode 13 and 14. Troy and I are not presenting separate lists. We got our gray noggins together. We came up with one list to rule them all. One list that we both agree on. Troy, is there anything you want to say before we reveal our number 10 selection? Well, we did, uh, we definitely referred to many lists. That's one of the things that we did. Well, the, the first thing we really did was David and I did construct our own sort of subjective favorite lists, and then we compared them. And then we went and uh, we checked out many different, um, not just top 10, but like the best horror lists that we could find in, in different uh, venues. So uh, we came across things like the uh, AFI list of best thrillers of all time, the Rolling Stone uh, greatest horror films list, Rotten Tomatoes, 10 scariest films, Fangoria greatest horror list. Um, and we sort of just, uh, you know, saw what was there and did it as um, logically as we could. Now, one of the things that we don't get into really um, is 21st century horror. Um, I, it was sort of my idea that, you know, with a lot of films, you need to give them a little bit of time to see um, how long they're actually going to sit around, what's what's their cultural impact going to be. Um, you know, do these films have legs? And um so just to, to let you know, uh, Rolling Stone did have a, a list of greatest uh, 21st century horror films, and I will read those to you quickly. Uh, Get Out by Jordan Peele, 28 Days Later by Danny Boyle, Hereditary by Ari Aster, Let the Right One In, uh, The Babadook, Invisible Man, The Conjuring, uh, Cabin in the Woods, Pulse, and The Witch by uh, directed by Robert Eggers and uh, sort of 
as I was looking at it, I just threw out there Midsummer, It Follows, A Quiet Place, the two It films, and Last Night in Soho. But um, you will not see those on our list yet because, again, I think they need to uh, uh, sit in the oven a little bit longer and, and see how they come out eventually. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about A Quiet Place is I had heard before going into the to see the film, not sort mm-hmm. of a spoiler, but the con- the idea is you're watching this film, and anyone who has sort of drinks or popcorn, <laughs> stop eating the popcorn to stop drinking the drinks because everything <laughs> becomes silent. Yes. And it's such a cool feeling to be in that theater with other people watching this film. It was but just came up before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, where things got sort of shut down. Yeah, that was exactly my experience of um of uh What's it called, David? The quiet one? Quiet place. <laughs> sorry, quiet here we go. Place. That was my experience. Let of the, the quiet qu- one in. No, sorry, yeah. that's a different film. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. There's actually a few that I keep confusing the, the titles. There's uh, Let the Right One In, It Follows, and I think it's called Not Just Breathe. Don't Breathe. Breathe Quickly. Stop Breathing So Heavily. I'm Trying to Sleep. Something like that. I don't know. There's even Shape of Water, which uh, is sort of more like a mon- like if you call horror a monster, then you can certainly count that. But as you said, Troy, we're not really looking at the most recent ones. But the other thing that we've sort of left off our list, but once we it's all revealed, is we haven't gone back because we've already done Universal Classic Monsters, we've already done the early stuff, and something like King Kong, the way it was presented and just the whole story behind it, is almost treated like almost it feels more horror than anything else and dracula frankenstein and those early classic ones so our our ones fall more in anywhere from the 50s or 60s uh, through the 80s but we'll certainly um um uh, get into that and one of the things we we wanted to just briefly do, do it before we get into the list is that and we've often asked our guests when we talk about this is what is your first experience of whatever the topic is that we're covering, you know, like recovering a specific book or movie. When did you remember first reading it or seeing the film? So in this case, uh, Troy, you may have mentioned this in one of our earlier ones. So we're just both going to tell our stories, but very briefly um, is how were you first introduced to horror films? Well, definitely my, my mom was a huge horror fan. So that was always on, TV. Um, and the big one that sort of messed me up as a, as a kid was um, Mario Bava's Black Sabbath, which is a an anthology film. And there's one uh, segment of that film, um, which I believe is based on a Chekhov story. Um, and it's totally like the whole Mario Bava uh, jello um look to it where like the the reds the blood and whatnot was really red and the background colors were super super colorful anyway that one totally made an impression on me um and i still watch it for a thrill how about you david Uh, i've got a couple one of uh, uh, one of which was somehow they did weird things like they had movies of tv shows like they were in the drive-in so it was actually some kind of a night gallery kind of thing that was shown that was like maybe some compilation of three episodes or something but one of them that was scary was this thing that was in a barn in the upper part of the in the rafter in the barn or the 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 second floor where there's a line drawn on the floor 
know, where the, the, the hay is and other stuff. And there were a bunch of eyeballs around. And that line meant you couldn't go closer to that line because Sonny was chained to the bed and that's as far as it could reach. So as a young kid. Wow. And of course, Trilogy of Terror in oh, the yeah. 70s. Right. You know, the specific Black. one, of course. Yes. The, and, and, the one and... with the. Yeah, yeah, because there's a, it's a trilogy, but everyone refers to the scariest one. Oh, the tiki doll, the, the tiki doll. Yes, yeah. that, that gets yeah. out of the luggage and is it, uh, trying to attack. And that whole end scene, that that last moment, which you, I don't want to give away, no. is so brilliant. So, so do you want me to mention uh, the, yeah, yeah. The, the four or five that, that, that were on my list that didn't make the final cut? Well, I had sure. um, The Wicker Man, which we did a show on, the 1973 Wicker Man, never, ever, ever to be confused with the Nicolas Cage version. Um, American Werewolf in London, uh, from 1981. That's one of my all time favorite films, period. Um, just, it does so much so well. The movie just trucks along. There's not a dull moment. Um, a Canadian film, The Changeling from 1980. That's probably, that is the very first horror film I saw in the theater. And I still find it's got great impact and it's a ghost story. So it's all about atmosphere. Um, Poltergeist 1982. Um, that is, you know, well, it's on my list, so obviously I love it. And um, the Blair Witch Project from 1999, which I just love what that film did in such an audacious way. I had a few honorable mentions that didn't, you know, get anywhere near my top 10. I had Shaun of the Dead, 28 Days Later, Evil Dead, um, The Witch, Hereditary, Midsummer, Pet Cemetery. And, well, actually, there's one that I'm not going to tell you because it did end up in the top 10, even though it didn't make my top 10. How about you? Oh, sorry, David, you're on mute. Yeah. So for my top 10 that didn't make our agreed upon uh, top 10, Parasite. Um, and the haunting, I guess. Maybe mm. that's only two. Um, sorry, maybe I pushed my list too strongly. I'm not sure because I think the rest of these, um, yeah, made it, made it. So, well, maybe you just have, you've got good, no, you've got good taste. And some others that I had that, that didn't make the list that I think, um, I can't spell sixth properly. But there are some. Oh, I like that. For me. David David added an e at the end of six. It looks, you know, like uh, Shakespearean or something. <laughs> so I had The Conjuring. I had Saw, which I think is one of the most underrated. It has a scare. It's a surprise. Um, yep, Saw intense. definitely could have gotten in that, and it's not one of these things where it's just there for like the sequels. And the yeah. purge, like if you see the, and I do recommend, even though you, you may not like splatter films or those kinds of gore kind of things, I think that's overplayed a bit and it's it not is. overplayed in the, no. the original of these series. The first Saw film and the first The Purge are well worth seeing. And you can obviously, if you're someone that doesn't like that kind of thing, you turn away at certain scenes, but the sequels get even, they try to outdo each other and so on. But these ones are so artistically and so well done. And the Saw is, probably five or 10 times better than the purge uh, other films like the six uh, oh, I can't remember six cents made our list. Sorry. So let me shut up right now, but the devil's <laughs> backbone is early. Um, 
Del Toro. I think the director's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, Del Toro. Yeah, Del, yeah. And a friend of mine recommended it, and I and wow, that's such a beautiful ghost. It story. is. The others, Carrie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Misery, uh, which is more the monster and the psychological side of things. And what a performance, too. I mean, that's the amazing thing yeah. with, with Misery, with um, Kathy Bates, and she won an Oscar for that. And there's only a handful of of films out there that are in the horror genre that have actually picked up major um, Oscar Acting awards. Honor. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. But let's go back to our actual top ten. Let's do it. Let's do it. Actually- As we're about to jump in, David, into our uh, our list, I wanted to say that every one of these films is a classic of the horror genre. All ten of these films have inspired sequels, remakes, or reboots. Six were adaptations of novels or short stories. One director appears twice, but all of them are master filmmakers. Uh, we've got a few films that are inspired by true crime accounts or news stories, and we've got more than a few that were inspired by EC, horror, or sci-fi comics. So let's jump in. Do you want to start with number 10, sir? Let's do it. Let's do it. Here's the reveal. Number 10. And I'm, I'm going to guarantee before people lose their shit that after number 10, nothing on this list is, is questionable. Some people might raise an eyebrow here, but number 10, we have Black Christmas from 1974 directed by Bob Clark. It falls into the slasher thriller, uh, category. Do you want me to uh, give you some of the notes that I have for it, David? All righty. I'm muted. There you go. (laughs) That was a great uh, horror film title, Unmuted. Um, Okay, so what I've said is, although director Bob Clark is well-remembered for another lighter Christmas film, A Christmas Story, he was also well-versed with horror, having directed Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. David and I have previously done a deep dive into Black Christmas on last year's holiday extravaganza, Part 1. Uh, Black Christmas is a horror film that we both have a soft spot for with its University of Toronto locations and its Canadian cast featuring Margot Kidder, Doug McGrath, Keir DeLay, Art Hindle, Andrea Martin, and Lynn Griffith, as well as non-Canucks like Olivia Hussey and John Saxon. The film features a sorority house that is victimized by a crazed killer who also makes obscene phone calls. The calls themselves are quite explicit. Um, subsequent remakes have been unable to reach the level of depravity of the original film. The image of the first victim covered in plastic, staring wide-eyed in horror as her corpse is rocked in the attic of the sorority house is iconic. The monster in the film is the mysterious killer, but not Cure Delay. Could it be HAL 9000? Hmm. The body count is seven. And... In an interview with Icons of Fright, director Bob Clark discussed a conversation he'd had with a young John Carpenter about a possible sequel to Black Christmas. Clark made it clear that he had no intentions for a sequel to his film, but he did, quote, say, or he said, quote, it would be the next year and the guy would have actually been caught, escaped from a mental institution, go back to the house, and they would start all over, and I would call it Halloween. And... It's iconic because part, some of the ones that we picked on our list are ones that have started a whole genre, a whole type of horror. That And Black Christmas is certainly one of those because it's one of the earliest 
kind of slasher kind of um, film that inspired Halloween and, and Halloween itself inspired so many others. And that's what you get is the inspiration to continue and making it your own. So we give great credit to Bob Clark, but also to John Carpenter later on. And you never know. Maybe that film, Halloween, could appear in... Oh, I've said too much. So number nine, Night of the Living Dead from 1968, George A. Romero. And actually, uh, Troy, you invited me over and we watched the, sh the movie. If I had seen it, it was so long ago that I could barely... Rem I remembered some scenes, but it was so... The black and white, the quality of it... That, as you said, the, the use of shadow and light and camera angles and everything else, like this was not some handheld Blair Witch kind of thing. Like this had a lot, or, or an Ed Wood kind of thing. This right. was of a very high level artistic quality that starts very slowly and it goes to a certain, I was thinking, okay, what's going on here? And then once more people show up, it really starts to fly. So, uh, what did you think of, um, uh, Night of the Living Dead. Well, it's one that I saw in high school when we had a, a filmmaking and a film history class. Uh, and a teacher actually was able, I guess, because um, it's it's public domain. It was not, they didn't copyright it properly when the film came out. And um, so maybe that's one of the reasons he was able to show it in class. But I was amazed that he did, you know, because it's like zombies and you see intestines and there's even nudity. And this was, um, you know, watching this in, in public school in 1980, whatever it was, 81 or something. Um, and it's funny because it was one of those things that we kind of laughed at because you were too cool to be scared. But um my friends and I, we, we all loved it and we all kept coming back to it. And it's just one of those films that I can watch whenever it's on. And it's got this incredible moment of social commentary. Like I, I could totally see Jordan Peele remaking, um, Night of the Living Dead, um, and not having to tinker with it too much. Um, we basically get a, uh, really a, a black protagonist in it. Um, I'm not going to spoil it because it is a really powerful ending, I think. Um, but, and we even get to see like, you know, like there's this, this character, like, I don't know if you'd ever seen in a, in a movie, uh, a black man punching a white man before, but that happens in the film. Um, I can just see like that being as offensive to some people in, in that era as like people eating intestines, which is something that we see as well in the film. Um, well, so one film in the heat of the night with Sidney Poitier, there's a, a moment where a Sidney right. Poitier uh, slap because he slaps. That's right. And he just slaps it back. Yeah. Slaps the, uh, the, the white guy. So it doesn't happen that often in film of that era for sure. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, it's got to be there. Clearly, it's a zombie film, and I have it listed because I've included, for whatever reason, body counts. Uh, the body count of uh, Night of the Living Dead is 22. Oh, and Black Christmas's body count was seven. Did I say that? I probably did. So number eight, uh, some people may not consider this this horror because it's more suspense and, and there's all sorts of things, but some films straddle things. Silence of the Lambs uh, is our number eight. And it is one of the ones I mentioned, even though I made a mistake in an earlier episode of our podcast, where I was mentioning the three films that had won actor, actress, director, and film. 
Uh, Silence of the Lambs was one of those, and the other one, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and it happened one night. Uh, so Silence of the Lambs won all these major wars, and you have a, uh, about as evil a character uh, in Hannibal Lecter as you can imagine. And the whole gameplay between him and the um, agents is quite something. So it's just such a stunning and such a good film. Um, it's actually rated out of the 10 films we have under the IMDb rating out of the 10 we've agreed upon. It is the highest rated one. It's at 8.6. Uh, the director was Jonathan Demi. What are your notes, Troy on silence of the lamb? Well, quickly I have, and I found this on a site, the body count is 28, which sometimes they will list, uh, murders that are just spoken of so i think that's why it's so high because i don't i don't really recall there being that many actual murders on on camera well um other than you know just the basic breakdown that it's about a young fbi trainee who is hunting a serial killer seeks the advice of the imprisoned dr hannibal lecter a brilliant psychiatrist and cannibalistic serial killer um i say that it is the only film on this list that I do not enjoy watching in any way. And as a result, the film in our top 10 that I've seen the fewest times. Horror films are often compared to roller coaster rides. Silence of the Lambs is not the ride that I finish and think, let's do that again. It's one where I finish and think, thank God I survived. Get me the hell out of here. Um, and I think that just means that it's a, it, it does its job very well. Um, that film freaks me out. Very cool. That's sometimes that's what you want. You, the, the director has then done their job as yeah. the writer, the actors, the whole thing coming together. Yeah. And the whole scene near the end without spoiling it is just strong throughout the whole, whole film. For sure. And I've got to say too, David, I'm, there's a bit of a, uh, a dichotomy with me where is I enjoy most horror. But if it gets too real, I, I can't do it. Like, I don't even like watching uh, police procedurals or hospital dramas. <laughs> um, I find those too intense sometimes. Um, whereas often when I'm watching horror, I feel like it's escapism. You know, it may as well be a fantasy film with dragons or whatever. Um, but sometimes when it gets too close to the truth, it's like I... I can't watch it. I can't, I can't watch it and like enjoy it, but, but definitely a brilliant film because it like it cleaned up when horror never does well at the Oscars. So um, it's, it's a well thought of film. Yeah. And there's, there is a scene without spoiling it again, that uh, Hannibal Lecter tries to escape and something happens and, and there are issues there and how he attempts it. I don't think the science is quite, there because you can't just do what he does and somehow not someone not noticing what he's doing like like not because of sort of the underlying science but i just don't want to uh, it's long enough ago that you don't think we should be it's from 1991 for god's sake. right so how long can you not talk about specific things <laughs> from a movie or a tv show so That's basically right. okay so and there so if you want to just skip ahead about two minutes 
listeners, if you haven't seen the film, there's a moment where he's able to somehow escape. And what he does is he's able to actually remove the face off a guard, put it over his own face. And then somehow that, because I think the face because of cheekbones and because of basically your, your structure of your face, you can't just take someone else's face off, put it on yours. So I'm going to pass yourself right. off as that other uh, right. uh, person. You've got a different bone structure. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm not a scientist, so maybe I'm wrong about that. See, now I had forgotten about that scene and that reminds me, David, I wanted to mention that supposedly three of the films on our list were inspired or it's probably not the right word when we're talking about serial killers but influenced maybe um by ed gain the wisconsin killer um and i'm not going to give away the other two but i know that um thomas harris uh i know that elements of his novel um came from the research he did at quantico um and, and he did for years so um, there are definitely actual serial killers, ele- elements from different serial killers, crimes that were included. And that definitely sounds like um, uh, actually a film that's not on our list. Uh, Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was also uh, a character that was influenced by uh, Ed Gain. Yeah, and that film almost made our agreed upon a top 10. It was just outside it. Yeah. Um, and there was a series on TV. I know it's not movies mm. that were looked at quantum, looked at the early beginnings of the behavioral science unit and then looking at serial killer. I can't remember the name of the series, but I well, watched the whole first season. It was very good. Are we, are you thinking of Mindhunter? Yes, Mindhunter. Yeah. I that, that was, was very, good. very good. Yeah. Do you want to do number seven? Number seven on our list is Halloween from 1978, directed by John Carpenter, written by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter. So this is from Hollywell's Film Guide, 1981. They say, in a small Illinois town, a mad killer escapes from the asylum. Very well done if you like that kind of thing. Um, so my notes are, we've got, uh, sometimes horror is best when you don't overthink it. Halloween is set on one night and revolves around a babysitter, Laurie Stroud, her friends, and an unrelenting killer wearing a William Shatner mask. Originally known simply as The Shape, Michael Myers escapes from the asylum to return to his hometown and begins a murder spree. The Shape was intended to be the embodiment of death, much like Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Halloween was made for $320,000 and shot over 20 days. Carpenter also provided his own iconic score, and like, who else does that? Creates a brilliant, uh, iconic film, and then, you know, comes up with the music for it as well. Yes, John Carpenter intended to kickstart a franchise for Halloween, but the plan wasn't for it to feature Michael Myers. Carpenter had hoped to create a yearly anthology of horror films set on October 31st and telling various tales, but the original Halloween was so successful that the producers wanted a proper sequel featuring The Shape. Carpenter reluctantly obliged, and Halloween 2 was born. So when the time came for a third film, he returned to his original idea for a yearly anthology. Halloween 3 bombed. The studio and the fans wanted more and more of Michael Myers and Laurie Stroud, and so it was. 
Uh, a little note that I, I came across today, both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing were offered the role of Dr. Samuel Loomis before it went to the great Donald Pleasance. The body kill, surprisingly, five. Yeah, that seems a bit low for but it was just one night and one area that he was um, going after. But it was very iconic, like Halloween. Right. You can definitely see, most people should have Halloween, I think, in their top ten. Well, the great thing is that, um, you know, people sometimes forget the, uh, the distinction between terror and horror. And the idea is that terror is the fear of, uh, a bad outcome, let's say. Um, so when you build terror, which Halloween does really well, it's that anticipation, that suspense. So, you know, here he comes. Oh my God, there he is. What's going to happen? And, uh, you know, horror too often is just, the gore, you know, here comes the guy and there's the blood splattering. This is the horror. This is the horrifying moment, but really terror is a much better thing to aim for. Yes. And a great strong, uh, female lead mm. uh, in that, just like another film that's, or, or so that will be coming up on our list is that you've got the protagonist that has to fight off the monster and how they're able to do it and who knows we might even see a blood relation of laurie stroud as the list progresses number six is the thing um i always thought it was called john carpenter's the thing but it's just the thing uh john carpenter also had john carpenter's ghosts of mars which sorry it did not make our top 10 list uh but the thing did uh, there's so many people who have positive resp- uh, responses to it. This is an 8.2 rating. It was came out in 1982. Um, John Carpenter, again, that's two straight films on our top 10 uh, directed by John Carpenter. Uh, the Thing is based on a short story, Who Goes There, by John W. Campbell Jr. Uh, but The Thing is a much closer relation to that original short story, Who Goes There?, than the movie The Thing from Another World from around 1954 by Howard Hawks. This, The Thing, is so good. It's sort of like when you think of aliens coming after alien. The Thing is so well done, so powerful, such a good cast. Like this is a cast strong from top to bottom, uh, just like another film that will be coming up in our list very shortly. <laughs> um, and the psychological, the idea of the monster, but also the psychology and the idea of, is this, is this someone that, you know, like, is it mm-hmm. like invasion of the body snatchers where the idea of invasion of the body snatchers was that something could take you over and you don't know who is who. Well, who goes there? The thing had plays that so well. And there's even a sequel to it from, I think around 2011, that was a prequel to the thing. It sort of ends with this same shot as the beginning of this movie, but this movie is certainly not a sequel to that thing from another world. It is its own standalone closer to the original novel and it is terrifying and well done. And definitely it has to be in everyone's top 10 list. I think. And for those who don't know, uh, I'll just give a little synopsis from the from the uh, uh, back of my Blu-ray. It says, in the winter of 1982, a 
12-man research team at a remote Antarctic research station discovers an alien buried in the snow for over 100,000 years. Once unfrozen, the form-changing alien wreaks havoc, creates terror, and becomes one of them. Yeah, it's a film uh, steeped in paranoia, nihilism, and gore via the practical effects of Rob Bottin. In many ways, it's the polar opposite of 1982's uh, E.T., uh, the Thing is the first film in Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, which also includes The Prince of Darkness and At the Mouth of Madness. And At the Mouth of Madness, that's basically a, sort of a retelling of a Lovecraft tale. And The Thing is definitely influenced by um, by Lovecraft, especially this version of The Thing. The Thing has no final girl, as it features an all-male cast, which is very unusual. Um, like other films on our master list, The Thing, though underappreciated at the time of its release, has since found the respect it deserves and is considered a classic. Oh, Body Count is uh, 12, David. And the music, which was fabulous, was by Ennio Mor- Morricone. And that's the thing. I mean, all films, you know, you, you hope have a, a really good score. But with horror, it's essential to have uh, some great music. Yeah, and a great cast, too. I mean, Wilfred Brimley oh. Jr., no oatmeal before its time. No, that's not quite the phrase he used. <laughs> but um, seeing him in it and, of course, the uh, the main actor. It's oh, Kurt Russell, yeah. Kurt Russell. Yeah, and Kurt Russell, for a while there, was to John Carpenter as uh, Jimmy Stewart was to Hitchcock. He was just, like, in pretty much everything he was doing. Yeah, because there was Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., um, there's, uh, I don't know if it was Carpenter, but there's big trouble in Little China. Yeah. Um, he was in a lot of classic genre movies for sure. Yeah. Okay. So we're moving on to, I guess, number five. Alien was released in 1979 and directed by Ridley Scott. It had this amazing tagline, which pulled you in which was, in space, no one can hear you scream. Um, this is from, I'm going back to my Hollywell's film guide from 1981. Listen to this. Astronauts returning to Earth visit an apparently dead planet and are infected by a violent being which has unexpected behavior patterns. That's like a little uh, underselling it. Unexpected behavior patterns and eliminates them one by one. Deliberately, it says, it's deliberately scarifying and highly commercial shocker with little but its art direction to commend. <laughs> and my wow. comment and my comment was, fuck you, Halliwell. Um, I know, can you believe that? <laughs> like wow. so So that was sort of like the immediate response. And like like we we know this film is now a classic, but that was sort of the immediate response. Um, I say in my notes that all films are a collaborative effort, but few films have such stellar elements from top to bottom as alien. There's the Dan O'Bannon script, the Jerry Goldsmith score, the visual influence of Swiss artist, HR Giger, a perfect cast featuring an unproven female lead director, Ridley Scott and an unforgettable monster. Writer Dan O'Bannon had the basic idea for alien for well over a decade writing a sci-fi script called They Bite as early as 1975. As a child, he had a deep fear of cicadas and other insects. O'Bannon was quoted as saying, 
I didn't steal from anyone. I stole from everyone. And that's including a 1951 EC comic entitled Seeds of Jupiter, which included a gory stomach bursting scene. And like the thing, alien shares Lovecraftian DNA. H.P. Lovecraft once wrote, the essence of horror is the unknown. And we definitely see that in both the thing and alien. But things really began to come together when O'Bannon was introduced to the artwork of H.R. Giger, specifically a volume of his work, Necronomicon. When director Ridley Scott was uh, brought on board to the production, he agreed that Giger's work would be an essential part of the look of Alien. Always a hands-on filmmaker, Ridley Scott shot 80% of the film himself. And my final note is that at the end of the film synopsis in the original script is this note. The crew of the Nostromo is unisex and all parts are interchangeable for men or women. I thought that was kind of fascinating. The monster in it is, of course, the alien and the body count is six, but it's all terrifying. Yeah, with some iconic uh, scenes, the uh, scene um, with uh, John Hurt's character and the uh, alien um, when he gets sick after eating some food is one of the great iconic horror moments with a cast with Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, as I had mentioned, Harry Dean Stanton, oh, so good. Ian Holm, Yafit Koto. Uh, it's such a strong um, cast. What's cool is that there is some rating system for these films. We've already done, got up to number five. Of number five, we've already done one, two, three, four, five. We've done six films already. And of those six, four of them are listed under IMDb as X ratings. Now, we're used to different systems and different things. There's R rate, there's 18 plus, or there's PG 13. There's various ratings through, throughout. But four of these films are X rating. Now, that's beyond R rating. You know, beyond R rating, right. it's X rating. Like, this is yeah. not easy to be able to get into one of these films when they come out. I just remember this be- film being played at a convention at Ad Astra with my brother Brian, who was probably 15 at the time or, or 14, whatever it was, seeing this film. Because uh, there's no one there to really control it. The only ones were Silence of the Lambs and Black Christmas were listed as not as horrifying. And we're giving like you had to be 18 years of age to be able to see those. Every of these other ones, Night of the Living Dead, which we watched together at your place, was there were some scenes in that. And you had even mentioned to me, Troy, that there were some scenes that made it so that people wouldn't even show the film. Right. Yeah. And one of them was the child killing the mother. Like that was uh, a bridge too far back those days for the uh, uh, the film rating system. You know, um one of the things I loved about Alien, I just wanted to mention before we, we, we go on to number four, was, again, the, like not just the visual grittiness of the film, but how there was this um, push towards realism in that we had um, Harry Dean Stanton's character. Oh, Yafit Koho. Koto. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, him. That That's the fella. Him and <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton. Um, you know, they're these working guys and they're, and they're actually like having sort of like labor relations, uh, with the mission, you know, like they're saying, you know, we're not getting paid for this. And they, they bring it up a couple of times. Um, yeah, Tom Scarrett's character has to say, by the way, if you don't, if we don't respond to the signal and go to figure out what's going on, then you will forfeit all of your pay. 
yeah. for the and that shuts him up pretty quick. And I also right. love the scene when when Harry but, Dean Stanton it's actually turned pulls some lever just to have some steam flying out of of somewhere just to bother Sigourney Weaver, uh, uh, Ripley's character, right? Uh, that Sigourney Weaver's uh, uh, Sigourney um, you got it. Weaver, right? Yeah, uh, character Ripley, and and that's so funny because then Yafikoto's character just looks and laughs because you know these guys are just playing up the fact that they are repairing things at the rate that they're repairing them, which is probably very slow. Right. Uh, well, and and his character as well. I'm going to get it again. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. David's showing me. It's like, what is that? His IMDb or something? Uh, yeah. That Kodo. Uh, he keeps saying too, like, well, why don't we just, why don't we just freeze him? Why don't we just freeze him when, when uh, uh, John Hurt's character Ash, right? When yep. he has has this thing in him, um, you know, he keeps sort of trying to make sense of it. But what he doesn't realize is that there's this corporation that is pushing for all of this to happen. I mean, yeah. the whole corporate aspect of it is much more in your face in the second film. Um, yeah. But I, I liked the subtlety of it in in the original one in Alien. Yeah, so, I think John Hurt's character was Kane because Ash yeah. was Ian Holm. Oh, that's right. The doctor right. that was. Yes. That uh, well, we can't we can't spoil Aliens from 1979 for God's sake. Yeah, but you and we did give a spoiler. Robots. Yeah, that's, yes. that's right. <laughs> Often, okay. You should have seen the blood. The whole the whole place was well. It's it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here very slowly across the showers, and there was no sound. And uh... Psycho is our number four. It's from 1960 and 8.5, so it's the second highest rated. That and Alien were 8.5s, and Science of the Lands was 8.6. Alfred Hitchcock, this one, strange enough, listed as 15 and older. So you could be 15 years old at the time it came out and actually watch it compared to these other X-rated films. This is, I believe, the oldest film in our list. Yeah. With apologies to all the great films that came before that, uh, because there have been a, a great number. Some amazing things with Psycho, include one of the most iconic the, the music the, the slasher music the, the sound of the knife the, the shower scene that sound of that which you might actually ins- find the sound and insert into this episode um and the idea that you're following a main character like you're following this woman and what's going on with her and all the issue with the bank and 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 she's under a lot of stress and she's driving and she ends up at a hotel and you don't normally have a protagonist 20 minutes or 25 minutes into a film meeting an end and then everyone else trying to pick up the pieces and trying to figure out and of course martin balsam the only thing that i found a bit odd with the film and maybe it's just because it was from 1960 that's quite a while ago that's 62 years ago was a scene with Martin Balsam at the top of the stairs where he's falling back mm. down sort of the stairs and that effect of him and, and what's happening there that didn't quite hold up 
for me as well as it probably did at the time. But what's cool, there was this also a documentary about Hitchcock and him trying to get Psycho made. And the whole thing about you see Hitchcock outside the theater or just outside the, the entrance, you know, the, to the theater, listening to the reactions. And you can just hear at the right time people. And it's got one of those great moments, just like in Carrie, where something happens and it's just such one of the top five easily, maybe the top three scary moments in all of film. Now, imagine this for a second. Imagine that everything that, that has happened recently, you know, like since Psycho has not happened yet. Imagine that, uh, you know, ever since, say, 1959, we're still watching things like um, Roger Corman horror films and um, like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and fairly safe stuff like that. But can you imagine Alfred Hitchcock, who, uh, when Psycho came out, they did everything that they could to keep the film under wraps in terms of what happened. So they actually would not let you into the theater. And I think that you pretty much couldn't leave the theater. Like they didn't want people spoiling things. So can you imagine him, if the, the, the film just comes out in, uh, uh, in 2022 and, and it's got, we've got the internet and we've got cell phones and, and <laughs> Hitchcock is trying to not have his film spoiled. Oh my God, the man would die. Like he would lose his shit, you know, cause it would be impossible. People would be, Oh my God, did you see what happened? And you know, and she dies like a third of the way through it and all that stuff. With it all the have... multimedia and with all the people talking and everything and how connected the world is now compared to what it was then. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole thing with what the matrix is or the movie, I see dead people, you know, the sixth sense which has one of those twist endings, which I didn't see coming, but other people did. And you don't want to spoil that to other people because it's such a good and, and somehow uh, the sixth sense is one of the ones that we mentioned did not quite make our top 10 list, but it was quite a film itself, but it's easily could be spoiled. Just wreck, you know, right. someone just tells you, Oh, this is what happens or the others. Yeah, which is such a strong, and that I would put in the horror category. It didn't quite make our top ten. It would probably make our top ten if we were just ghosts. Like we just had it, you know. We just wanted to look at the top ten ghost films, yeah, for the or, others or, and some other films. Yeah, go ahead. yeah. Or I was going to say if I was doing a decade list, and I'm not sure if that came out post 1990s or if it was the early aughts, but I would put it probably in the top ten of either of those decades for sure. So with the shower scene. The shower scene itself took seven days to shoot, even though its running time is just 45 seconds long. Hitchcock breaks so many cinematic rules in those 45 seconds. He crosses the axis of action. He includes jump cuts. Some shots are out of focus. And then there's the nudity. Like all of it is like Hitch going, I'm making my own rules. Um, and, and this is a guy who by 1960 had been making his own rules for 30 some odd years. Um, and let's not forget that he kills his leading lady, as you said, a third of the way through the film. Um, 52 shots in 45 seconds. And this is back in the day, not of Avid, not of Final Cut, not of digital editing. This is when, you know, you actually physically cut your film. And some of those shots must have been like just one or two frames long. Like it just boggles my mind that he was doing that much editing. Um I watched a documentary last night uh, called 78's 
uh, 52, which is just about the shower scene. And somebody pointed out there that the scene where Janet Lee is driving before she arrives at the hotel, she's, she's driving in the rain and the windshield wipers are going back and forth, back and forth and how it sort of foreshadows the, the murder scene, uh, where there's the streaming shower and the slashing knife. And I thought that was pretty cool because I'd never heard that before. But, you know, this is a film that is studied and that scene in particular that is studied uh, ever since the film came out in film school. Like this is how you teach, you know, how you how you cut a film and how you um, make a film. Um, so it's no wonder when you pointed out that Psycho, which came out in 1960, is our earliest. Um, but, but it is like ground zero. It's It's ground zero for the genre. Um, you know, a lot had happened before, but a lot of that stuff was just adapting famous horror novels and whatnot. But this was like the beginning. Um, the British film critic Mark Kermode said, there's a reason everyone goes back to Psycho. There's a reason everyone goes back to that scene in particular, because it becomes a primal moment. Anyway, just uh, fantastic. And David, can I ask you, is it not insane that Alfred Hitchcock never won an Oscar? Yeah, that's um, that's kind of shocking. It would be almost like you would say someone like an Orson Welles never did, but I, I'm sure that Orson Welles must have won an Oscar. Too. Or Spielberg, but you know, Spielberg. His, or yeah. well, Spielberg has won. Right, but imagine um, if you if Spielberg had. But if if you know. hadn't, then that would yeah. be the sim- a similar thing. Like someone at that level doing what he did with Psycho. Um, uh, incredible. I mean, even one of my favorite films of, of Hitchcock is, and it's very psychological in that sense, is The 39 Steps, which mm-hmm. I think was written by a, a Canadian. And that whole scene with Mr. Memory and the whole, you know, just what goes on with the film is so good. And that's early Hitchcock. Yeah. And we are moving into the top three. We're, we're getting there. And now I've got to say, these top three are basically in every top 10 list that matters. So don't. there's no reason for you to be shocked about these top three. These are the real deal, people. This is yeah, like, and these three are our, li- our original list also had these three. Yeah, this is like talking about uh, Gretzky, Rocket, Richard, and Gordy Howe, you know, being in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I throw Bobby Orr in there myself. Oh, yeah, I would do that just, too, yep. That just uh, might be me. Alrighty. So, um, number three, um, I'll probably start with three. Uh, Rosemary's Baby uh, from 1968. Uh, and this is uh, directed by Roman Polanski. We understand that um, things, issues with uh, Roman Polanski and that he's definitely you know, someone that we shouldn't be celebrating. Uh, we're trying to separate the actual film from the director, which in some cases is difficult. But uh, we just want to be, you know, make sure that people are aware that we know that uh, Roman Polanski has been canceled for very good reason. Um, uh, 1968 is a rating 8.0. Um, it still holds up. I watched it a few years ago, and it still holds up. And it's, again, the whole psychological thing. She's trying to make her way through life. Um, 
the various party scenes, the, the ending of the film is so strong. And it's a shocker, too, the change, like what, what goes on and the fact that she realizes what who she is and what she is involved with what's just happened how it's shot and the fact that this is like a, 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 a devil worshippers or witches or this whole coven like group and what their purpose is it has a, almost a sense of something like like this is a precursor to uh, the exorcist in many ways Definitely. Uh, what did you think of uh, of uh, Rosemary's Baby? Well, just for folks who haven't seen it, I just have a really simple uh, summation. It's uh, Polanski's uh, perfect adaptation of Ira Levin's novel about a young couple who move into a gothic apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side that has a dark history and an even darker satanic secret. Um the film really did, you mentioned The Exorcist, the film launched the occult horror craze that lasted well into the 1970s. It was the first of its kind. And this is something I had not heard until recently. It has been reported that Anton LaVey, the head of the Church of Satan, was on set throughout the filming as an advisor. Um, as sort of as an aside, much has been made of Rosemary's Baby being a so-called cursed film with Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, being murdered by the Manson family a year later. Uh, after the film's release and John Lennon being murdered outside of the Dakota, the, the building that was used as the uh, location um, for Rosemary's baby. In any case, Rosemary's baby is a masterwork of filmmaking. We spend the entire film wondering if Rosemary is indeed the pawn of a satanic conspiracy, or is she simply going mad? Polanski never tips us off to one side or the other until those final minutes of the film. Um, Dave, here's your, your another Beatleism. I know I did just mention John Lennon, but here's our Beatleism for this episode. Rosemary's Baby was shot from August 21st to December 20th, 1967. And then, do you know what Mia Farrow did in the new year, David? No. Nope. She joined the Beatles at the Maharishi's ashram in India, where they wrote a song about Mia's sister, Prudence. She was to go completely berserk under the care of Maharishi Mahesh All the people around were very worried about the girl because she was going insane. So we sang to her. There you go. And my other sort of aside is that Maurice Evans played Rosemary's friend Hutch. And less than a year later, he would be Dr. Zayas. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. And a great score by uh, Christoph Kamita. Um, the monsters in the film were obviously the Satanists of the Bramford apartment. Um, and I suppose Satan. <laughs> um, not a high body count, but a very, very effective film. Absolutely. Now, did you want to uh, start with number two? I know this is one of your your favorites. Sure. But here again is a really awful review from... Uh, from Hollywell's film guide um, it says under the influence of a desolate hotel where murders had occurred, a caretaker goes berserk and threatens his family. 
get this. Uninteresting ghost story sparked <laughs> by meticulous detail and sets, but finally, <laughs> but finally ruined by over length and an absurd <laughs> and an absurdly over the top star performance. <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Hollywell's Film Guide, for your insight. But the truth is that the film was not well received at first, and it's like its reputation has grown over the years. Um, it was Kubrick's intention to do for the horror genre what he had done with science fiction in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, though The Shining was not well received critically upon its release, it is now considered a classic. Um, and one of the best of all time. The film is littered with iconic lines and images. Red rum, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Here's Johnny. The ghost twins, the uh, deluge of blood from the elevator, the chase in the snowy maze, the woman in the bathtub, Jack's scene with Lloyd the bar- Barber. <laughs> Jack's scene with Lloyd the bartender. Although Lloyd the Barber sounds kind of funny too. Um, anyway, the, it's The Shining. <laughs> it's as yeah, Paul McCartney said about the criticism of the White Album, it's the bloody shining. Shut up. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been said in the past, uh, you know, King was not fond of it as an adaptation. And I know what he's talking about in terms of an adaptation. But as a horror film, if you don't know the, the novel, it's, a, it's an amazing horror film. And that is one where the music is just so good. And it's mostly the use of uh, modern uh, classical that is used throughout, and it's just so good. David, well, what do you got? Well, yeah. sometimes an adaptation shouldn't have to be word for word. Like, yeah, I'm sure that um, uh, uh, King probably likes things like uh, Shawshank Redemption as a film, and some of the other works that have um, come through based on the body, the the film that. Uh, stand by me that came through that um the shining that that sense of the shine or someone having that ability uh from the novel certainly comes through in it and the writer like like a number of times king has the writer whether it's in misery or the shining being beset and the fact that that's such a great moment when the uh, wife, uh, Shelley Duvall's character, goes in and sees that he hadn't been working all this time on this novel. He's just been repeating the same line over 500 pages or whatever number of things that he's clearly gone, so to speak, over the cuckoo's nest, if I can pardon the pun. <laughs> um, also, the idea of twin girls basically that's just scary in itself it's just a terrifying place to be supposedly kubrick had uh scat man in the like he's not in many scenes but the scenes that he's in at, at the hotel uh he had him do multiple times like i'm talking i think the lowest number i want to say hundreds but i think 73 is the lowest i heard so like the scene with danny where they're talking about the shining he just had him do that scene all day and the worst one was where he takes the axe to the chest. Yes, I gave you a spoiler alert, people. Uh, where he takes the axe uh, to the chest from Jack Nicholson um, or Jack Torrance. Um, he had him do that like multiple times. So this man who is in whatever it was at that point, his late 60s or early 70s or something, 
had to fall on this marble floor like more than 50 times. Not nice, eh, David? Yeah, yeah. I may um, have muted myself. Oh, no, you did not. You did not. Okay, good, but, good, good. but one of the great things about The Shining, too, is, I mean, it's such a wonderful, like all Kubrick films, a wonderful visual experience. And one of the ones that I love is that the tracking shot, well, it's not on tracks, it's actually a steady cam behind Danny Torrance on his big wheel as he's riding around mm. the, the floor plan of the hotel. And we mm. get that great sound of when he's on the floor and then he hits the rug. So it goes like, you know, it stops and starts because sometimes he's on the rug and sometimes he's on the, uh, uh, the floor and it just creates tension. It's almost like its own music with, with this cutting in and cutting out. And then there's the shot where Jack comes up to, uh, the model, a massive table model of the maze that is outside of the overlook. And he's got this really kind of like evil look on his face, but then it cuts to what looks like his POV, but it's actually outside of the real maze. And you can see like super minutely um, Danny and Wendy running around in this maze, but it's from this godlike angle so far above the maze that it's ridiculous. So I'm still not sure. I've never heard it discussed how they got that shot because it is right above the maze. There's no shadow of like a crane or something. Um, and I'm, it's 1980. I think it's pre CGIing that type of thing, but it's one that I keep, uh, wondering about every time I see the shining. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can argue with it. Yeah. And I think um, people probably realize what our number one is by now. Yeah. Do you think, do you think I should, we should talk about number one? Yeah, we even did an episode of our podcast on uh, this that had Valentino Asenza as our guest. When do you think maybe we should talk about number one? As soon as possible. As soon as possible? Okay, let's do that. All right, so number one, drum roll, is The Exorcist. Ooh, nice day for an exorcism. 1973. You know, each of these movies has a quintessential, like, you got Johnny in The Shining going through, peeking his head through the, I think it's the bathroom door that he's already been cut, been axing through. And I don't know if that's when he says, here's Johnny or not. Yeah. But there's that moment where he does that. The exorcist has Father Marin with his bag outside oh yeah the house in the fog and that i think even made it to the cover of the 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 film or whatever is such an iconic beautiful moment well let's pretend that um we've got somebody out there who has never seen the film so here's a quick little description for you a little synopsis the daughter of a famous actress begins manifesting strange behaviors and may be possessed by a demon the mother consults with a Catholic priest who is dealing with his own conflict of faith. Despite the priest's initial reluctance, an exorcism is arranged. That's it. Oh, yeah, that's it. Oh, I did want to say, I wanted to put out a reminder uh, to listeners that we did do a fairly in-depth uh, pair of episodes last Halloween on The Exorcist with guest Valentino Asenza. Um, and we suggest you check that out because we go into 
quite a lot of depth on the film. Um, but for those who don't know as well, it was nominated for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture. And I mean, it was to, to say that it was a cultural phenomenon is not uh, over, sorry, is not overselling it. Um, like I will, I will say this, David, that of all the films on our list, this is the only film that was discussed in my Catholic church uh, the year that this film came out, where where basically, you know, and I, we've talked about this in the past too, how uh, for those who don't know that the Catholic Mass is uh, highly ritualized. It's not like a free-form thing like some other forms of Christianity. But there's a moment in the in the Mass called the homily where the priest reflects on something that's going on uh, currently and how it might um, tie in with with the scripture that was read. Um, and we spent that Sunday talking about uh, how legitimate, not questioning, but how how <laughs> how legitimate the film The Exorcist was, and how it was made under the guidance of the Catholic Church, um, which freaked me out. I wanted to be told that this was just a movie, but uh, I had uh, these priests saying, "Oh no, no, this happens. Yeah, yeah, we do this." <laughs> wow. Yeah. So uh, also, you know, the other thing is it's almost like Psycho and some of these other films or, or Planet of the Apes where you don't see the apes for X amount of time. Right. The actual exorcist, the, the people who are actually going to do the exorcism and actually start the exorcism is fairly late in the film. They do everything that you think that you should do, which is with this uh, daughter who is exhibiting all of these things you're going to do the medical thing you're going to go see all the doctors you're going to do all of that thing that that the whole scene itself is a horror scene when she's actually Mm. in that machine that's moving up and down like almost like that mri kind of thing and how what's it doing to her and she and and you can just see the degradation of the um uh the the, the actress that's uh playing the mother ellen burston who is going through all of this stuff. And then she goes to the psychology route and that's doesn't go anywhere because clearly this person, the, the, the daughter is possessed. And when she finally meets with that younger priest, you know, that whole joke about we need a young priest and an old priest. So she's meeting with the young, the younger priest and just her covering that scar, that whole meeting with that priest where she is on the last, you know, she's at wit's end. Like she's, done and just that whole interaction is just so brilliant and and we did read the novel before the the, the show uh and watch the f- film again of course and i didn't realize just how vulgar how strong the language the, the film only shows so much of based on what is actually in the novel and this was definitely a very strong x rating Definitely. And especially for the time. But it does amaze me that our number one film and our number 10 film um, both have like really, really raunchy language that I don't think you can get away with anymore. I mean, studios want to play it safe all the time now. Um, they want to make sure that they can reach, you know, the broadest audience possible. So I don't think we're ever going to see another film that has that level of intensity and that a level of vulgarity that the exorcist and black Christmas have, um, you know, unless it's like an independent film. Yeah. And I think the book itself was such a, 
the black, like it really knocked people's socks off. Like it just, you know, there was nothing like it right uh, out there. And for them to bring it to film and do it justice, do it as well as they did to reach number one on our horror list. And this could even be, if you just forget horror and forget all and just say, what are the best films of all time? We start talking about things like Citizen Kane and Casablanca and As Good As It Gets and some of these other films over the the years. I would throw Unforgiven in there. Um, and there's just so many great films. The Exorcist should be in that, you know, conversation. Yeah, for sure. And the thing is, you know, with The Exorcist, not only does it deal with these elements of, of horror, but it's... Um, it's a family drama. We're dealing with a mother's struggle and a sick child. Um, we're also dealing with big issues. We're dealing with things like uh, free will, philosophical issues. Um, you know, why does this type of, why does suffering happen in general? You know, um, we're dealing with these, yeah, uh, yeah big religion. ticket items. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the whole concept of religion and faith and hope and, and belief. Uh, that whole scene, what they also had, and I can understand why they did that because there was a scene of her going backwards down the stairs that was done in sort of maybe a director's cut or a longer edition, but the original theater one, because it just didn't quite work that well. But the whole scene where she urinates in the middle of that part, like she mm. just basically let's go. And then she says that line, because there's some guy who's an astronaut that's going to go up to the, the moon soon. And she and her statement, matter of fact, saying you're going to die up there, is so chilling. Yeah, the the party stops right then. Um, yeah, it's it's a great scene. It's funny too. It's a film that has uh, a lot of sort of elements of sort of cinema verite happening uh, through it. And one of the things that uh, William Friedkin did was. Uh, many of the priests that are in the film are actual priests and many of the people that are at the, uh, the that party scene are actual residents of Georgetown. Um, so like you quite often have this feeling that like it just, that it feels real. It almost feels like a documentary. Uh, and even the fact that like when she approaches the priest to uh, get the exorcism, he's like, well, you know, no, maybe you should, go the, the medical route or the psychiatric route. And she's like, I've done that. <laughs> you know, I've done those things. I'm coming to you because you're my last ditch effort. Um, and he's still like, well, I don't know. Like, you know, it's not really, we don't really do that. Um, so, and her, you know, her desperation is just, uh, you can just feel it. Yeah. That whole beginning of the the exorcist and then it going on, it's just like that, that whole, a whole other part of the world. And how it connects to Father Mare and eventually having to be there. A very smart film. So that's our top 10 uh, list. Well um, done, sir. I'm not that sure. Was if it's, that was, that yeah, was fun. I think it worked out very well. And um, one thing is, is that some films that people may not consider horror, like even 2001 A Space Odyssey, could be considered a horror movie because Hal 9000 is like Bates or Buffalo Bill or Hannibal Lecter and even Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now with Kurtz. Yeah. And when he says the horror, the horror, and just what that is could almost be. And I think you had a, a, a note about the connection of 2001 and the fact that Cara DeLay was in Black Christmas. 
Right, which made me wonder if if perhaps the actual murder was um, Hell Nine Thousand. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, again with two thousand and one, just that sense of isolation is terrifying. Yeah. So uh, this is our last episode of season three, if you can believe it, Troy. It is hard to believe. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So our season three had 14 episodes, including this one. Our our first two seasons were also 14 episodes, each putting this episode as hold number 42. And uh, we have in the past actually done things where we did just an episode recap. But instead, we'll just take a minute to just say that this season started with Bruce Willis retrospective because Bruce Willis had his family just noted that um, he was having health issues and retiring as an actor. And we thought it was important to mention all of the genre films and and his contribution. Uh, And uh, the next couple, if you want to speak to that just for a second. Well, yeah, we got into uh, folk horror with episodes two and three. And uh, episode two, we had uh, The Wicker Man and uh, we did Midsummer in, in episode three. And those were both with Sandra Kasturi. Um, and then we did our sort of summer thing that uh, matched up with our um, shrinkage episode from the previous season. We did Size Matters Part 1 and Part 2 in episodes 4 and 5. And uh, I think we were up at Lake Dalek for that one when the weather was good. We're, things are getting chilly now. Um, and then uh, where'd we go after that, David? Uh, well, if you want to talk about this one, this was sort of your... the, the one. Oh, right. You- well... I remember I pitched the idea for this show to you when you and I were off to a Toronto Argo game last summer. Um, and the idea was uh, something that tied in with music, specifically rock and roll and sci-fi. Uh, we called it our Galactic Rock Special. And that was a three-parter, our first time we'd done a three-parter. So episode six, seven, and eight were part one, two, and three of Galactic Rock, and that was with with Lee McCormick. Yeah, that was excellent. Our, our next one, episode nine, was Mystery Men, looking at that film. Uh, our guest was uh, Ira Naiman. Um, and the next one was one that was one of your um, pitches, I think. The Saturday mar- morning cartoons, which, yeah, it's funny. I didn't even think of it, but uh, you mentioned how, you know, cartoons animated uh, i guess i was just using it broadly as the saturday morning uh shows that were on when we were kids and that was a fun one uh to record and fun one to put together that was episode 10 and then i guess we got into uh, a great uh, exploration of bev vincent's new book stephen king a complete exploration of his work life and influences um and it was also a celebration of the 75th birthday of stephen king those were episodes 11 12 and 13 and the final one was the one that you just listened to two old first talk sci-fi top 10 horror films which isn't that it's actually just troy and david's top 10 horror films so anyways thank you our master our master class master class we'll send you the bill later yeah. Uh, oh, that would be kind of nice. Um, so uh, thanks, Sandra Kasturi, uh, Lee McCormick, uh, Ira Naiman, and Bev Vincent for being our guests for the various episodes of season uh, 13. Thanks a lot, guys. And yeah, we were really lucky to have uh, all those folks along for the ride with us, uh, two old geezers. That's it. So, uh, Troy, if you want to mention some of the places where people can reach us. 
Yeah. You know, check your favorite podcast provider. Uh, try our website. We're 2numeric2of.ca or Twitter. We're at 2numeric2oldfartssci-fi. Facebook is a great place uh, to find us because uh, a lot of interaction there. Um, we're 2oldfartstalksci-fi. Please tell us what you think. And if you haven't already found us there, look for us on Spotify and please do all the things that you, you want to do, like, uh, like, subscribe, leave a review if you like. Um, just other than that, just go to your favorite podcast provider, which I assume you're already at if you're listening, but please do tell a friend. I am David Clink. And I'm Troy Harkin. See you all for season four. Our first episode should drop on Saturday, November 12th which will be our next thrilling adventure of two old farts. Talk sci-fi. And happy Halloween! Yeah, Yafit, yeah. Oh my God, this has to go at the very end, I think. So, Yafit Koho. Koto, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, him. That That's the fella. Right. Uh, that Sigourney Weavis, uh, uh, Sigourney um, Father, Sigourney Weavis, uh, uh, Ripley's character. Oh, wasn't that scary? Oh, I got scared, kids. Oh. Whoa!